Welcome to French Legal, where we explore innovation in action. I'm your host, Abhijat Sarasmith, and in each episode, we dive into conversations with changemakers who share ideas, insights, and lessons from their journey. Join us as we put theory into practice and shed light on the world of innovation like never before. I'm delighted to have Abdi Shaiste, the founder and CEO of Altakara, on the show today. We'll be discussing a lot of topics, including how, as a legal tech startup, you worked with getting your first customer, talk a lot more around what Altakara does and what specific problem they're looking to solve, and actually, why do they want to solve that problem? So we'll dig into a lot of that. And Abdi, good to have you on the show. Thanks for making some time for us. Ab, it's a pleasure to meet you and thank you for having me on your show. I'm excited to have this conversation. You have a very interesting background. I don't want to spoil it for the audience. So yeah, give us a bit of your life story, if you don't mind, in both the early years and then what made you start Alta Claro. And I might pause you in the middle just because it, there's definitely a few takeaways from me in that story. Yeah, no, that's a great place to start. I became an entrepreneur by accident at a very early age. At the age of 11, I was helping out and eventually, believe it or not, managing a cafe in San Diego. Uh, and, and how that happened was that uh, we exiled like many Iranians to the United States from Iran after 1979. Uh, I was eight when we arrived and um, my father was a diplomat, uh, but he was a good diplomat, but he was not a good businessman. And so he got involved with some uh, business uh, uh, partnerships that just continued to fail. And one of them was this cafe that someone convinced them to be a passive investor in. And it was like a French gourmet cafe in the middle of beach town, San Diego, where nobody really appreciated croissants. It definitely was not product market fit and it's the wrong location. And the, the guy that was going to run the place quit after six months. And so uh, my father said, hey, well, uh, I need some help. And, um, and, uh, and so I said, sure, I'll come help. And little did I know that it meant waking up 5 a.m. every morning during the summer and taking the bus up there, up the 30 minutes away from home, because we had one car. My, my mom took the car. She was a teacher and there's a finances. And we would go to the shop and my dad said, okay, great. You are up front. You're the bus boy, the manager, the waiter, and I'll be back. I will be washing dishes and I will be cooking. Because my father, he just had, had too much pride to be out in front. And so I said, all right, I'm going to take it on. And so I started diving in and it was my first experience. I would take, by the time I'd get the coffee from the kitchen back to the table, it was half filled because I, my hands were shaking as I bring the coffee. And it was an interesting experience. My dad let me take it on. I, I did some market research and said, mm -hmm. oh, we need to change the menu. We need to change the prices. And nobody wants a gourmet cheese down here. <laughs> But as painful as it was, because all my friends were out having fun, I learned a lot from that experience. And the pain was that every month we'd break even. Everything we'd gross, we'd have to pay for the rent. And it was my first taste of, gosh, wow, that's, we worked so hard. <laughs> we just, we're not making any money. But very grateful in hindsight for that. My, after that, I convinced my dad to sell it. And he did. And the last investment they made, it also went sour. And that, that was when I was uh, uh, 16, 17. They lost my college savings. They had put it in a foreign bank. It was a right. bank back then, BCCI, that went under. And depositors lost their money. And my parents said, that was your college money. Good luck. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Obviously, I was a spoiled brat at the time and was felt entitled. And I was like, this was my money, but there was nothing I could do. So mm -hmm. 
I said, you know what, I'm going to go, go find a way. And so I started uh, at UCSD in San Diego and I had so many jobs. I was a trainer and I was a t-shirt salesman and I was just whatever I could get to pay for college and it worked, but it was taking up too much time. And then eventually one of those companies was like, I can do this myself. And that was creating t-shirts and clothing for fraternities, sororities, campus events. And that's what I did my freshman yeah. year. I started this company and that was because I had my back against the wall. Right. But it was a great experience because that was my first company and it financed my entire education. We grew it to 10 people. We did all the UC schools in California and it was just through word of mouth because back then these, these silk screening companies didn't deliver on time and didn't do quality work. And I focused on quality and delivering on time and just, it just wildfire grew and financed my education and I wanted to grow it nationwide. And of course, being immigrants, my, my mom said, what do you mean? You're going to, you're going to be a t-shirt salesman. We didn't come to this country for you to sell t-shirts. You have to be a lawyer or a doctor or an engineer. And I said, fair enough. So I sold the company and uh, collected royalties. Yeah. And I applied to Santa Clara, which was uh, in Silicon Valley to go to law school there. And I figured, all right, I can't be the entrepreneur. I'll be the lawyer for an entrepreneur. And I went there and enjoyed being there in 1998, the early days of dot com yeah. bubble. And of course, I graduated from law school and pretty quickly after working at a firm that represented uh, startups and entrepreneurs and investors, I joined a startup and uh, that was my second startup. It was a fintech company. Back then, we didn't even have the word fintech. It was called Bank Technology. Um, it was one of the first B2B internet mortgage companies. And I, I joined on initially as uh, the head of legal. And there were four people. We had to solve some legal regulatory issues. And we did. And then I uh, became head of business development and landed their first enterprise client. And we went literally from four people to 100 people overnight. And the company grew and we were on the front page of Bank Technology News and it was a great experience at the age of 27. And eventually I, the board made me the CEO. I became CEO of the company. And at the age of 28, very humbling and a great experience, baptism by fire. Eventually I sold the company to one of our largest clients, LPL Financial. And that was my, my second startup that I had an exit with. And of course my mom was, when are you going to grow up and really be a lawyer? Yep, absolutely. I, yeah. I, I can appreciate that. And by the way, I think if someone writes a biography for you, it can aptly be titled Baptism by Fire. Really interesting stories so far. Obviously, young age, getting a good feel for what it takes to run a business, right? Understanding the core concepts probably at that age. I don't know if you were thinking actively about market research or not, but practically speaking, at least learning the what works and getting the intuition for it. And then putting a lot of that into practice through law school education and then being CEO and BD and head of legal and all of these multiple hats that you wore in the startup days. So you've had a exit, hopefully a nice profitable exit from the second startup. And of course you were thinking, well, I'm going to go and just relax on a beach somewhere uh, in Southern California, go back to your San Diego days. But and what happened? You didn't get enough of the <laughs> excitement running two startups and having two exits. What happened? What, what made you go back? Yeah, no, it's, a, it's exactly that phase. We sold and I helped integrate the company. Actually, LPL had a San Diego headquarters and I was in Silicon Valley at the time and I moved everybody down to, to San Diego and I had a chance to go, but I didn't. I decided to take some time off to figure out what I wanted to do next. And I was seriously burned out at the age of 28, 29, doing those things. You don't know how to manage your life. You just keep working. 
And I needed to, some time for self-care. And as I thought through, of course, that this thing that eventually I outgrew was this voice of, you should really try to practice law. I was trying to please my mom. I, I made a decision to, to really go all out and be a lawyer, even though financially I was okay for a while. And I had clerked at the Federal Reserve when I was in law school. I really enjoyed banking law, especially because I lost my money through a banking scandal and, and I wanted to figure out what happened. Uh, but uh, my old boss from the San Francisco Federal Reserve recruited me to come to New York and to be her deputy. And I, so I moved to New York um, to, to basically really start my legal career. And, and I worked at the Federal Reserve and eventually I came to King and Spalding and I thought I'd, I'd be in New York for a year and, and come back, but I, I loved New York and ended up staying and practiced at King and Spalding's New York office. And I was a deal lawyer, did the corporate finance and international banking transactions and enjoyed practice of law. And eventually I went in-house and was deputy general counsel for Global Bank. And, and once again, I enjoyed the practice and leveraged my entrepreneurial skills inside the organization and was good at what I was doing. But I still, in the back of my mind, had this burning desire to go back and start something. And I felt that I learned a lot in these different environments, which helped me grow in many ways. So the timing was starting to be ripe for me to think about getting back in. And then you also, you pass the age of 40 and you realize, okay, I'm doing this for myself. So let me do what I want um, in terms of having no regrets. And so that's, I pulled the umbilical cord and left the corporate world to join, to start something. I didn't know what it was yet. Yeah. Yeah. And I wonder, yeah, as you said, you've been part of startups of companies and there is a certain set of control that you get in creating your own thing, right? Even if you have, if you are part of a startup as you were employee number four, it's still someone else's vision, their idea that you're executing on. And you probably have a lot of influence and a lot of say in it, but there's something freeing and independent and creating your own thing and you get to shape it in however you want it to within reason of course and yet what was the inspiration for Alta Claro now and I guess before we do that if you don't mind in a sentence or two just so anyone who's not familiar with Alta Claro what do you do so we will jump forward a little bit before we rewind the clock yeah no absolutely so Alta Claro is an experiential learning platform for lawyers and and what we do is we we put uh, attorneys through an experiential learning framework where they're learning by doing, working on mock deals, mock transactions, and getting feedback on that simulated work product, all with the goal of bolstering their confidence to do real work. So it's training attorneys by attorneys, but done in a way where it's very interactive and you're working on fake clients to, to get your confidence to, to work on real clients. Okay. And then now let's go back. Yeah. What made you, as you were thinking about, I want to create something of my own. Obviously you're a deal lawyer. You have a lot of this experience, but I, I presume training wasn't, and education wasn't front of mind, although maybe it was based on your mother's background as a teacher. So I don't know. Yeah. I have to, one, one aspect, the influence was my mom. She was a great, she was a very good teacher and she was a Montessori school teacher. So I, early on, I was exposed to learning by doing and actually hands-on learning as the best way to go at it. That I think definitely had a role in it, but it was through my pains as a lawyer, especially as I was ramping up in New York, working in big law, where I had this fantasy sitting in, the, in my office in New York and think it was 11 o'clock at night, something was due the next day. And I wish I, I was like, oh, I don't know what I'm doing. I wish there was a place I can go where I can practice, make mistakes, get feedback. And in college, you have a mentor 
a, a tutor. Why not have a, a tutor for your professional career and development? And so this fantasy was just a fantasy. And I figured things out and I got lucky. I worked, my office was next to a, a partner that was the corner office that, that he sat in. And he took time to explain things to me. And I thought, geez, I'm lucky this guy's taking time to explain something to me. And I, it helped me advance even just 20 minutes of his time, but others don't have that same access. And especially as you look across the firm, minorities and female attorneys, because the same people are getting the same deals over and over again. And so after three years, people get pigeonholed on something and they're like doing due diligence and rather than moving up and drafting core agreements and, and they burn out too, because they're not advancing as well. So I thought, geez, why should my success depend on luck alone, especially yeah. after spending hundred thousand dollars on my legal education. And years later, when I was training junior associates as a senior lawyer, I also saw the pain of training, <laughs> right? I had to take time away from billing to put together a meaningful program. Lectures don't work, right? Uh, can you imagine trying to learn how to swim by attending a lecture, right? <laughs> and videos don't work either. The same thing, trying to learn how to ride a bike by watching videos. You're not going to, or learning how to swim. Yeah. So the way you have to really do it is either put people through real deals, which clients don't want to pay for, right? They don't want you to train your, their associates on their dime, or take old deals and, and have them go through a mock deal. And that works really well, but it took up a lot of time. And, and the thing that I realized was even if I took time to do it in the New York office, my colleagues in San Francisco office didn't have the same time or consistency. And this once again was a fantasy. Wouldn't it be great if I can, when it comes to the basics and foundations of things, send people, because law school doesn't teach you this stuff, right? The law school helps you think like a lawyer, but they don't actually teach you the practical skills to, to practice. And, but anyway, this fantasy stuck with me. And then when I went in-house, I really saw the pain again. Mm. As I was reviewing bills from law firms, and I would see an associate spending 10 hours on marking up an NDA, I thought, geez, that shouldn't have taken him more than an hour, maybe two the most, right? I'm not going to pay 10 hours. And so I spent a lot of time negotiating those fees down. And, and that's when it hit me that this is a pain that I want to tackle. And that's what started this journey for my third startup, Altaclaro. And how long ago was that? So how long have, has Altaclaro been around? Yeah, so I started the, the journey in 2016, but really things picked up in 2017 and in 2019, really things picked up. But, and that part of that journey was I had been out of the startup world for a while, at least 10 years by then. And so I need to get up to speed. And so I applied to an incubator program called the Founder Institute. And have you heard of the Founder Institute? Yeah. 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 So there I was, 40-something-year-old with a bunch of 20-year-olds uh, going through this incubator program. And every week they, they do the Shark Tank thing where they bring in people and they cut you to pieces. And if you don't rank a certain score, they cut you. Yeah. So we started with 40 people and we ended up with nine people of the graduating class. And, and, and I got number one graduate slot from that process, which was... Nice. Uh, very humbling and great experience and very grateful for that. But I was like, wow, okay, I can hang with these 20 year olds. Let's do it. Let's get back there out go. there. Nice. Um, that, that's amazing. Yeah. And yeah, I think they, they certainly put in a lot of the lean startup playbook methodologies into practice for, for individuals without having to, again, ultimately what you're doing as well, right? So it's not so much read the theory because you can build a startup by sitting there reading all the books all day, or you can go out there and you need to speak to your audience. You need to be able to find a product market fit and 
ideate, evolve, and iterate on the product. Exactly. You have to learn by doing, just like anything yeah. else. Um, and that's what that program did for me, yeah. getting out of the building right away and, and getting the, the validation that I needed to, mm. to, to, to start out the globe. Yeah. Awesome. And then, so I, just for my understanding, this is, it looks like you're, I'm, I'm going to say the word challenging the traditional model of learning, at least for lawyers and legal professionals. But this isn't a alternative to someone going to a law school, right? This is much more what in the old days, quote unquote, maybe your apprenticeship or something along those lines. And I come from the bar background in the UK where there is still that apprenticeship phase where you do actually learn by doing. You, you have to, for six months, spend time observing, right? You might be working on things, but it's under very close and direct supervision. So you can find your feet. So it's taking some of those components. And as you said, you're tackling the problem of scale. So even if I can, and I'm a thoughtful, mindful senior associate or partner who somehow magically has enough time on their hands, you're still able to sit there and scale this to everyone else. Because even small or large firms, there's not too many of those individuals uh, that exist, to be honest. And even if they do, a lot of them are not trained to be good educators because that is a skill yes. of course so you're trying to take things and you're applying this multimodal approach and this exper experiential learning approach is that all of that is fair oh yeah no absolutely and you're absolutely right the uk still has the apprenticeship model and and that's great that in, in the united states especially around that time and today even it's gotten worse, is this apprenticeship model has withered away. Law firm economics don't really lend themselves to this apprenticeship model. And you have a situation, especially after the financial crisis, that clients really look at bills and they will just like I would say, I'm not going to pay for that. Don't train your associates on my dime. And so then things are very competitive. Senior lawyers have to spend time building and finding new clients and taking care of practice. And so where do you find the time to train and effectively train, right? And that's where we emerged at the right time because, yeah, absolutely. We're trying to, we're scaling the training framework for these firms, not to replace internal training or internal mentoring, but to help augment. Firms rely on us for the fundamentals of things, like what reps and warranties are, what operating provisions are, termination clauses, how do they work? And so we do that, and now that creates the space internally for anything more advanced or more nuanced. Or if those mentoring sessions happen at 11 o'clock at night, the partner doesn't have to start from ground zero to explain what a credit agreement is. The, the associates know what that is, and they're already diving in surgically to talk about the, this, this particular issue at that end. Yeah, and I imagine it also helps tackle that issue, both a bias that you spoke about before in all the work is going to a couple of individuals because they're approximately the closest ones or the partner just knows, hey, I've worked with this person before. I know they can get things done. That's fine. And also actually helps break the curse of being good, right? The better that you become, the more work you end up getting until yes. you get burnt out and then you go somewhere else and the cycle repeats itself. And, and the last point, I think reflecting on one of the stories that you mentioned, most of these things come up at the nth hour, as yeah. you're looking, especially for deal work, you're looking to get something out the door at five o'clock in the morning, the first thing for 
to the UK, you're in Eastern time zone and you're working, reviewing this thing all night. And you're like, I don't know what this means. What is this clause? How do I do this? Whether it's marking something up and you have a no resources, right? You, re yeah. you resort to um, Googling or maybe using the firm's precedent bank or something else, but it's not practical. It might tell you what reps and warranty means, but it doesn't know how to think about it as a lawyer, how to put that into practice. So I assume that you're helping with that too. Oh, absolutely. That's exactly what our programs do is to give them that first to, to, to figure out what this, these things are, credit agreement, asset purchase agreement, NDA, and then have the critical thinking skills to be able to tackle these things, regardless of what form it may come, which we'll talk about the way our programs work. If, if it's not linear, if it's a puzzle by design, going back to my Montessori school teaching, but that's the goal. And because at the time when I looked, and even to this day, across the Amlaw 200 and even smaller firms. These firms were all doing the same thing. They were buying these passive learning videos that they knew they didn't work, right? Or sending people off to seminars that didn't work. So they had to build something internally. And it was well-intended to create something internally. Maybe at the first week of the year that they did it, and then it dropped off because people got busy, right? Or if it was just lecture, or even if they did it right in one firm in the office, it didn't happen the same consistent way in another office. So then what happens is what you just explained, the sink or swim model where they're throwing people out there and the associates spinning their wheels, marking up something for 10 hours. And then the partner sees and has to write all that time off, correct the mistakes, mentor the lawyer, and all that adds up between the direct costs and the indirect costs. And there was a study recently, AlexisNexis published it. It's, it's over $20,000 per year per associate just for training between a partner and a junior lawyer. When I show that to, to partners, they're like, no, it's, it's more than that. It's probably more than that, <laughs> right? Yeah. Easily, easily more than that. And I guess yeah. that sort of comes to your team sent me a graphic around the importance of doing the educational science for, based on the research done on the Koenig experience. I'll include that in the show notes for anyone listening, but walk me through, because I think that helps to highlight the importance of it and I've seen some of these numbers before as you go through it, but none of it is surprising and I can relate to all of them. But yeah, just walk us through what is the difference between passive versus active learning and why it matters so much? Because I, I want to, and it's, sometimes it's more fun just to play devil's advocate, but it's hard to play devil's advocate because it is a big issue. You can't train everyone in the same way. And it's really difficult to train people on how to do something through theory alone. That has to be a component as a foundation, but the, to be able to unlock the next level or levels, you need something a bit more active and relevant. So yeah, walk, walk us through this diagram. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and uh, you're absolutely right. There's education science. It's not surprising when you hear this, but education science shows that we remember 10% of what we learn by learning by reading, about 40 to 50% when we learn by watching videos, and about 60 to 70 if it's like a workshop, there's some engagement. But when we learn by doing either the real thing or the simulated thing, we remember 90% of that information. And that makes sense, right? That you're doing it, you're applying it, you're getting feedback, is it working, not working? And so Doing the real thing, as we talked about, that's expensive, right? All that, all those. So now it's the simulated thing. But you're absolutely right. So that's where Alteclara focuses is to get people in the shallow end, have them apply techniques and get feedback, not just automated 
data feedback, which we do have, but also feedback from a human, which we'll talk about where we have vetted practitioners that give them feedback on their simulated work product, important part of the learning journey. But you're right, people learn differently. So we want to have all these modalities in the learning journey that helps uh, cater to the person's approach. So in all of our classes, there are three key pillars, learn, do, and review. At the outset of the associate's learning journey for any one of our classes, they'll watch an hour's worth of uh, pre-recorded bite-sized videos. These are seven to 10 minute segments. In between the segments, there are a set of assessments and quizzes that test their knowledge along the way. They're really just learning the principles and concepts of things here in this first hour, and it's self-paced, on demand. 10 minutes a day, 20 minutes every other day. But when they're done with this hour, the next thing that happens is the most important thing. That's the doing part. That's when inside the learning portal, you're now going to get a mock client, a mock assignment to work on. Use your client, XYZ company. They're about to engage in this transaction. You're the associate on the matter. Here are the issues you need to be aware of. Here are the tasks you need to complete. Even the documents you need to synthesize. Just like in the real world, there might be an email from a client, a term sheet, a due diligence memo, even a precedent form from a hypothetical past deal. You need to go in, find some good provisions, come back and mark up the document. So, sound familiar? It sounds like real work, Just right? A little bit. <laughs> yeah, not being not here. It's a puzzle. Yeah. It's self-paced assignment, so you can totally take your time with it. Yeah. It shouldn't take you more than two hours. But if you're pressed for time, you prioritize on tackling those big issues. Just like in the real world, the partner would say, I need this in two hours. So you got to do your best. Then you submit it in the portal for the third part of the learning journey for that one class. And that's a pre-scheduled live review session. And that's when you come in on Zoom to meet with one of our vetted practitioners, to go over the assignment, ask questions, instructor asks you questions, really getting to the whys and hows of what we need to do for that assignment, that critical thinking, right? And so that's the framework. And just a couple of things to note here in that learning journey and the way we design these. When the associate submits the assignment, right away they get a model answer, fully annotated red line, and we want them to compare their red line with the model answer red line. See what they missed, see what they got right. Build those reflection muscles, right? Yeah. Just like you would yeah. uh, when a senior lawyer gives you red lines. And, and come into the live session to hone in on what they needed to learn the most. The other part is we run these in groups of no more than 10 associates at cohort. Yeah. So even when a firm has 100 associates, we'll break it up into 10 cohorts of 10, put the newbies in one group, a little bit more advanced folks in another. Yeah. And that's because the instructor will review everyone's submissions. They will see what they folks missed, what they got right, and then come in to tailor the session based on how people performed on that assignment. Yeah, and I think the, and I've heard you talk about this sort of cohort of 10 before. I think that bit is super important, especially in respect to the review phase, because it helps you to, as you said, segment people by the stage that they are, because there's nothing worse than you sitting in a room with eight other people and six of them are really far ahead. And either you're trying to tackle a very beginner question and people start zoning out, or you're t tackling a topic that's too advanced for someone just getting started and they have no idea what you're talking about, right? You're starting to use acronyms and, and frameworks and things like that, that the others haven't come across and they might benefit from it, but probably not. At that point, they just, people just feel Am I stupid for not understanding this? Why don't I know this? Especially in the context of this entire conversation dealing with lawyers and law firms, 
I, I really do like that. And talk me through and we'll underscore that these are, and I saw some of the firms and practitioners that you have. These are people who've been doing this work. So they have practical knowledge and experience and moving as far away from the theory to this is what happens in real life kind of thing. But how do you think about the design of these courses and how do you think about that feedback loop? I think you alluded to you have these sort of database models and so on. So yeah, walk me through the feedback loops that you have internally as you think about these courses. Oh yeah, no, absolutely. Great question. A couple of things to note. All of our instructors have been highly vetted before teaching on our platform. They all have to have 10 years or more working in an AMLO 100 experience. They have to be currently practicing, but beyond their stellar CVs, we ensure we pick people who can teach, as you mentioned. And the way we do that is in the recruiting process, we'll put them through a mock teaching session where we pretend we're students and we evaluate folks who can explain things well, meet learners where they are, as you mentioned, break it down to when you were a first year, start from ground zero. These are important pedagogically. And then once they make it, they have to have four and a half to five stars on average from the associate reviews in order to keep teaching on the platform. And we monitor those every week. We monitor the instructor scores. We monitor MPS scores from the associates. We're always hovering around 50 to 55. That's um, very high. I like it. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. And we, yeah, so we're very obsessed about that. Um, but we also make these instructors uh, classroom ready. And this human element's important in the learning journey. We've, and the way we've scaled it is similar to, you know, other verticals are way ahead of us. One of our investors, the, 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 one of the co-founders of a company called Trilogy that, that was acquired by yeah. 2U. Yeah. And he structured this framework that we have, the playbook that we're leveraging, the way we've scaled the, t the instructors. But yeah, the instructors have a roster in front of them. They know who's, who's there, but also the associates in their learning journey have given us a couple of data points. First of all, they, they, we asked them at the beginning, what's your experience level with this assignment? Zero, or I've done three of these in the last few months. I've done six of these. And so there's an experience level data point that comes in. Then at the end of the assignment, when they submit, we ask them, how, how difficult was this? Was it easy? Was it just right? And so that, that score comes in. And then we say, do you have any questions for the instructor for your learning, learning in this journey? All these data points emerge on the roster sheet for the instructor. So they have this dashboard and they've reviewed everyone's assignment. They have a lesson guide. The lesson guide tells them minute by minute what questions to ask, what issues to bring out, when to weave in the assignment feedback, when to weave in their war story. So everything is structured, except just tailored to how people did. But you're right. There's a lot of data and insights that emerged from all of this that we saw that ben have benefited both the associate and the firms. Because as I mentioned, these assignments are puzzles and it's not everything in the video is going to be in the assignment and not everything in the model answer will be discussed in the live session. So we'll get a core of 10 and eight out of 10 will be like, oh, that was great. I get it. I got the, the struggle, but I'm glad we connected the dots. Thank you. Two out of the eight would say, I didn't get that. And not everything was explained to me. And I, in fact, they'll even downgrade us. They'll give us a four out of 10 or something, where the others gave us a nine out of 10 or a 10 out of 10. And, but we'll identify these folks early on that they are, they have some challenges that they need some extra support and help. And so we're, we're, we partner with our clients. We bring it to their attention that, hey, there are a couple of folks based on the instructor's rubric, because they have a rubric when there's a, it seems like they're not connecting the dots. And these folks may need some extra support. And the firms appreciate that. And we find ways to give them extra support. Like we'll have an ask me anything session. We might have a private tutoring session. And the firms appreciate this because the investment they're making in their associates to be able to learn early on that, oh, we need to give some extra support to this person. 
It's been tremendous data insight for them. And so, yeah, these things were identifying instructor assessments versus the associate assessments. That, and then you start to see some offices have more deal flow than others. And so then that's another identification. They yeah. go, there's folks in this office that are not getting it as fast as these guys. They're, here's your rising stars and here are folks that made a little extra help. Yeah, so, and all yeah. of that sounds really cool because it, it looks like it helps both the instructors obviously provide the best quality education and relevant education to, to the individual students. And of course, from the firm's point of view, you don't you just don't get this data otherwise, right? That there's you no know, most most trainings or seminars and things you go to and you get a survey that's completed by some. In some instances, if you're doing live training in a firm, I've been there, I've conducted some of these sessions and you get people to fill out the forms because that does help increase at least a response rate. But it's a it's a very static measure for how they feel at that point in time, rather than in some instances, maybe it's after the self-reflection phase that you talked about, right? They've completed it and they've now got the red line of the, of the best case scenario of how they should have answered this. And they're like, wow, I really didn't understand this. Whereas if you can ask them that before, after they complete that, you might have confidence saying, I think I aced this. Maybe they didn't. You just have no idea at that point. So that, that all sounds really cool. Yeah, no, it's interesting because you get a lot of those sometimes where folks are like, I'm super experienced or I thought this was easy. And then the instructor says there are these issues that we missed. But yeah, yeah. definitely that. We have 85% completion rates across our programs. Uh, and you know, we last, since 2022, we've got a 5,000 associates go through our programs and still we're, we're 85% or more completion rates. And so the data that's showing that those who finish our programs are still at the firm. And those who dropped off and didn't go all out, they're actually no longer at the firm. And that's another data point in and of itself. Who's really trying, been given this opportunity that, to learn and practice and make mistakes? Absolutely. Uh, and I can keep talking to you about this all day because it's, it's yeah. an important and really interesting topic and very fascinating what you're doing and your approach to it. Uh, I want to start wrapping up uh, two questions. The first one is you, you're working with a lot of firms now. And as you look at all of this data, I'm curious, are there certain trends that you're starting to notice? And let's focus this on 2023 for now on the kinds of training that people want. And of course, one of them I imagine is around generative AI. I saw that you've added a prompt engineering for lawyers as a course. So feel free to talk about any of those things. But as you look ahead and firms are starting to identify, and it, it looks like you work with a lot of the AMLO 100 and 200 firms. These are the needs that we have to fill starting now so we can service our clients in the future. Are there certain things that stick out for you or is it still the bread and butter of what you would imagine, all the deal work and, and litigation work and things like that? Right. No, great question. Our goal uh, initially is to start out in, in, in the deal transactions world because that's where we came from. And that's compared to litigators, there's really nothing for dealers. But we have, in fact, since the first client, which was K&L Gates, four years ago. Back then we had five classes. Today we have over 40 that cut across different practice areas from corporate, M&A, capital markets, real estate, IP tech trends, startup law, and now going into litigation, e-discovery. And our goal has been that first to cover years one through three and go wide. And as we've landed in these law firms, we've expanded into their other practice groups. But our goal is to eventually cover years all the way to 10, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Each year, you're going to need the different skills to learn. And you're absolutely right. 
and we get a lot of feedback from our clients on what else we should be creating. We're always talking to them. Certainly now going deep on some more advanced courses is something that's top of mind. But as you start to get into the year four, five, six, and you know, now there's this sort of non-substantive skills you need to learn, right? The communication, leadership, deal management, practice management, law firm economics, as you start to become a partner, you want to be there at every step of the way for those. But then there's also this thing on digital indigenous and how to use tools and technologies. And that's where this course emerged that we started with Warwick and now we're serving to other firms. And that's the prompt engineering, how to use the GAI tools in a safe and effective way and to help with your practice. Definitely this emergence, substantive skills, yes. Techni technology skills, yes. Business skills as well. How to read a cap table, how to read the financials. And these things have, uh, our clients have asked for, and we're going into those spaces as well, especially as we go into next year, 2024. Awesome. Yeah. And I had a conversation uh, not too long ago on the podcast around performance ma management for lawyers. And my key takeaway from that is the kind of skills that you need and the qualities you need to get to a senior associate are not even close to what you need in order to go from senior associate to a partner, right? And there's a huge right. skill gap. It's an unaddressed skill gap. And generally, as everything changes and you talked about being in-house and pushing back on, on bills, clients are asking a lot more of the lawyers. They want them to know not just how to solve the legal problems, but to be able to better understand the client's problem from a business point of view, to be able to read cap tables and all these other things and know what's going on. And of course, then be able to talk about general trends in the market, whether it's GAI or something else. Should we think about this? What is your firm doing? And if you don't know what the impact is from a data privacy and all other different facets of that, it's not a good look for you, actually. And clients are starting to take that into as a waiting, right? As they think about the panel firms. Oh, yeah. And the the um, the, the early adopters uh, that uh, signed up for Altaclero, those yeah. are the ones that are innovative. And of course, the, the others have followed. And, uh, but those are the ones that are thinking about it as client-centric first when they're thinking about what else do we need? Uh, yes, we need to be more efficient because our clients will be better served. We need to know business skills because, hey, look, we have technology clients. We, we need to make sure whether you're a litigator, a transactional lawyer, or even a staff, we understand what our clients want and, and what they're about. And in fact, we created this technology transaction series based on that. Or it said, mm -hmm. we serve tech clients. So can you create a course that talks about what hardware development, software development, apps, all these, this world of technology, what is it? And how does it, what is the lawyer's role in understanding these things? And so that, that started a, a, a series of other classes, but that it emerged from thinking about a client. Yeah. Yeah. And then as we wrap up, you're about four years into your journey. I'm going to take you back to year one. So post incubation, you won prizes. Now you have a business. I have real problems to solve. You said KNL was your first client. I'm curious, and this is a selfish question as well as for those budding founders out there, getting your first client, especially getting your first legal tech client. Yeah. It's tough. Talk me through your, as you reflect back on it, what was your approach? How did you manage to make that happen? Is this sort of reaching out to people that you have met or you're putting your BD hat on from your you know, second startup and just reaching out to people cold and trying to get interest? Yeah, that's a great question. So a couple of things there. One is about crossing the chasm, right? And for any entrepreneur, especially in the B2B world, to think about who your early adopters are those who are willing to take the risk for the sake of innovation, 
and and they're they're in every sector. Where back then, when I was in banking, there was a few, and then same in the legal industry. And so, yeah, Carol Gates and, and a few others were our early adopters that took that risk because they want to be on the cutting edge. They want to see. But then uh, once you cross the chasm, then there's these others that follow and as, as the laggards. <laughs> right? So identifying those early adopters, that's part of the, and those are the things I learned in the early B2B days when I was head of biz dev. Mm-hmm. The other important thing is, yes, we landed them without, it's important to land those clients without your connections because you really want to be earnest yeah. about your viability. Is, and, and so to sell to someone that you don't know, that's not your relative, that's not your best friend, right? It's this, you got to be disciplined because, and that's how we did it here. And, and the 95% of our clients mm. have been from that source because uh, yes, I knew a lot of people, of course, but I wanted to make sure I got feedback from people I didn't know. And so, yes, it, but getting to a K&L Gates, you have to make sure it's no joke, right? That the quality has to be high. Yeah. All right. And, and, and you have to deliver what you promise, All right, Going back to my t-shirt case. And so I, I've been fortunate yeah. to, to surround myself with a team. And so one of my teammates, Julie Ryan, she's our chief learning officer and really focused on quality and creating these courses. She's an associate professor of learning skills at USC and she's a 20 year practitioner, partner at a firm. So she really creates high quality courses, but to get there, we, we went out to the market and practiced in small law and got feedback and iterated on the product. And that was very helpful, which we got the product and delivery to a place where we're like, okay, now we're ready for the big players. And so that's what started our journey in big law. And K&L Gates was the first to, to work with us and a few others, the first 10 early adopters, Oric and Barnes and Thornburg and Taft and Hush Blackwell and... Yeah. And, and then, and so, yeah, then the others followed, but that first KNL Gates one is where we proved ourselves and we learned a lot. You're going to, you're going to, to yourself, you're going to fail in things, but you have someone who, who's willing to understand this is new and give you feedback, which will help you grow. KNL Gates today is one of our biggest clients and, and really grateful for that partnership we have with. Yeah. Awesome. And here's to a lot more. Thank you, Abdi, for coming on. For those that want to find out more. You can learn a lot more at Altaclaro. That's A-L-T-A-C-L-A-R-O.com. I'll link to Abdi's LinkedIn profile as well. So feel free to reach out to him and uh, you can find out um, how this could be useful for law firms, for universities. And if you are a budding instructor that wants to that wants to teach those that are just starting out or in that year one to five, as Abdi mentioned, or later, please get in touch. Indeed. Thank you, App, for having me on your program. Appreciated our conversation. And, and I look forward to staying connected with you. Thanks. I appreciate it. Thank you. And that's a wrap for today's episode of Fringe Legal. Thank you so much for joining us on this journey through the mind of innovators, sharing their ideas to inspire us all. If you enjoyed this conversation, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. We hope these discussions have sparked your own ideas and helped you think about how you can put them into practice. Until next time, stay curious and keep pushing the boundaries.